Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the U.S. Chamber Foundation's Path Forward series. If you've been joining us regularly, welcome back. If you're new to the series, I hope you'll find it interesting and informative and check out other editions on our website. We have been for the past few months, and, and I can't believe it's months in COVID time. I think it's been years or eons or something, but we have been doing weekly check-ins with business leaders, with academia with government leaders, with leading thinkers around the globe about navigating the next phase of this crisis, returning to work. We've looked at all kinds of aspects from testing and essential services like childcare and transit to sanitization, consumer confidence, and really everything in between. Today, we're going to talk about the legal system. When the pandemic first took hold, of course, remote work took off. And now we've gotten used to telework, telemedicine, even telehappy hours. But what we might not realize or spend as much time thinking about is that a similar transition happened in our legal system. Even in the Supreme Court, they held oral arguments for the very first time. Now, as the shutdowns start to ease and we're seeing the gradual reopening, people are turning to legal experts for help on everything from contact contract disputes to bankruptcy filings, and much more. But the new environment has led to a number of questions, including how has COVID-19 impacted our legal system? What does that mean for businesses, both small and large? Why are so many organizations worried about getting sued even if they follow all of the appropriate health guidelines. What are courts doing to resolve pretty significant backlogs and ensure that disputes are resolved quickly? Why should businesses be concerned about the wave of insolvencies and how can we prevent bankruptcy courts from being overwhelmed? To help us answer these and other timely questions, we really have an all-star panel, panel with us today, including Leo Strine, former Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court and of counsel at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Cat. Also joining us is Torsten Kracht, partner at Hunton, Andrews, and Kurt. We're pleased to welcome Jamie Gorlick, former Deputy Attorney General of the United States and a partner at Wilmer Hale. And finally, we're joined by Peter Friedman, partner at O'Mulvaney, uh-oh, O'Mulvaney, sorry, and Myers. We'll get to audience questions at the end. So as is our custom, please start feeding them into the chat. And I'm gonna start by asking a few questions of Leo Strine. First, welcome. And, and let's get right into, uh, we've heard that Delaware is reopening their court. So assuming that you're following the state's response really closely, how will a visit to the courthouse look different in the coming weeks and months? Suzanne, it's great to be with you on it. It is a stellar panel and uh, it's going to look the same, but different in a few ways that will affect um, the public. And, and we'll talk about the ways that affect business specifically. The way it's going to look in your kind of consumer, your litigant experiences, you know, as you know, Suzanne, there's been uh, uh, incidents in courthouses around security and other things. So it's always somewhat time intensive to get into court. And in busy courthouses, and that's really true in Delaware, uh, lines can build up because you don't want to have too many people in the lobby. That's a security risk. And so one of the things that's going to happen is there's going to be fewer people at first, but it's going to be a more time intensive process to get into the court. Uh, Delaware is not the only place that's going to do some, you know, sort of instant, instant uh, tests on people, whether they have a fever or not, things like that, Suzanne. So it's going to take a little bit of time to get to court in the courtroom itself, it's going to be different. For example, um, 
everybody in the courtroom is going to be expected to wear a mask, but judges can waive that for the folks pre uh, presenting. But the way they're going to do that to keep from uh, presenting a health risk to other people is they're going to really, instead of going to the center, which the lawyers on the in the on the call will, you know, you typically go to a podium to present. You're going to be presenting from your own counsel table. Uh, pitchers of water, you know, I just saw Susanna. I'm glad you're you're hydrating, so I'm going to feel free to to do it as well. No, I think I believe in hydration, particularly in the Mid Atlantic and the swelters all fully here. But you know, people are going to bring in their own water. Uh, interestingly, audio visual equipment, each side may have to bring in their own. There are things often courts now have, you know, very good, and we do in Delaware, for example, very good audio visual equipment, broadcast equipment. Each side will probably have to bring its own. Things that you see in criminal trials, for example, approaching the bench, others things is going to be strongly discouraged. I think for litigators, they're going to ask people to try to pre-position exhibits so that each side has the exhibits, the court has exhibits, the court clerk has exhibits to avoid passing those around. And the, you know, Delaware and like other places is going to kind of sort of ramp this up, Suzanne. And I think one of the things we'll talk about as we go and is one of the big changes is everybody's familiar with what we call list rooms or calendar rooms in courts where there are high volumes of cases, you know, uh, where they have traffic cases, uh, where you have other ca calendars. Those calendars are being strictly limited to less than two people and uh, less than 10 litigants at a time in the early phases, which is going to mean that things are a little calmer around the court, but that obviously has implications for backlog and other things that could affect other litigants. It's so interesting to think of courts as both public places, but also large employers. And you did a great job quickly of running down so many of the issues that are at stake there. Flipping to the other side, I think I read somewhere that the caseload was down maybe 20% in the first couple of months. Do you imagine that that picks up now that things start to reopen? Because that's kind of the other side of the equation, right, is the demand side and how business. No, I, 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 do, I do worry about that, which is, you know, that that people have, we're a fairly litigious society, as we know, and it's not just, and, and you know, and the business community is fairly litigious with each other. People have been holding their powder, um, trying to get through it. And so you, you can imagine things picking up, particularly, Suzanne, when some elements of the plaintiff's bar may feel less inhibited because the pandemic has slowed down a little bit to bring some claims. I think they're also going to evaluate what's happened to bring claims. But I think that thing you're talking about is also, you know, if you had a contract dispute or you had something that maybe you could put off or a tort suit, you, you may not have filed it. It doesn't mean that you won't go away, but if you didn't have a statute of limitations to beat, you know, you may be figuring it's a more propitious time to go back to court when things normalize a little. So I am worried about backlogs. I'm also worried about the following, which has an implication for businesses. I think in Delaware and other states, prosecutors, defense attorneys have probably made special efforts to rob, resolve as many criminal cases as you can without having to go to trial. But there's a number of very serious felony cases where a defendant will might rightly insist on going to trial or the prosecution would. Those things have been held in abeyance. Um, family court cases are a particular area we should be thinking about um, because some of those are, many of those are the most important disputes in our society. And some of them have probably been put on ice. And um, and, and so I do worry, and of course, the whole area of landlord-tenant, not 
on the commercial and individual side. I know a lot of states have started to try to resolve those things, but we and but remember part of the 20% reduction is governmentally imposed restriction. For example, you weren't allowed to evict in many states. There were the stays by governor governors and, and Suzanne and executive orders on the exercise of certain legal rights. When economies reopen, then folks have remedies like those and they may regrettably have to take actions like that. And so I do think that there's the concern that the cases that were filed during this period and cases that were pending have not moved as quickly as you would like, and they need to be resolved. And then there could be essentially a bit of an an extra normal case flow of people who didn't file during this time who come back to court. And so I think for many court systems, there's going to be a bit of a challenge getting back to the natural, um, their natural case flow speed. It was a fantastic run on, on a whole kind of the, 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 the whole course of, of legal matters. But let me ask you to hone in on one that I know your current firm specializes in, and that's mergers and acquisitions. Right. So what do you think the impact of this pandemic has been on that body of work? Well, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, and I, I look at friend Peter from O'Melveny there is, I think a lot of our partners have been extremely busy on things like restructurings, other things, people are going gangbusters. And part of what's also happening now, Suzanne, is that you're starting to see the deal break cases come and where things that made sense at an earlier time may not make sense now. And one of the things people forget about this is we had had a 10-year recovery period and the stock market was at very high levels of valuation, which meant when when acquisitions were being made, they were already priced you know, pretty robustly, which means if you're on the buy side of that transaction, Suzanne, and all of a sudden you know, you've agreed to pay cash and you, paid a, you were paying a premium over over a very high market valuation, and now you're paying one over a different one, that creates a problem. And in and in business-to-business acquisitions, where it's a strategic purchase, right, where they're in the same industry, often the buyer is experiencing the same um, problems that the seller is. And so for M&A, what I think is we're going to have a, a, a few dimensions. One, we're going to go through this period of what, can we salvage some of these deals, reprice them? But then there's a couple of cross-cutting current, currents in, which go have both domestic and, and global implications. As you know, there was already increased salience around antitrust and the concern that in some industries there was too much concentrated power. I think you'll see some, and you've already seen members of Congress worried about the low valuations allowing some industry spaces to become even more consolidated. On the flip side of that is you may see the government, depending on the impact on some industries, have to come in and almost facilitate mergers where it's not clear that all companies can survive. And internationally, there's another concern, which is you see the rise of so-called um, foreign investment statutes, because there's a concern on the part of folks that if their company's values are beaten up, Suzanne, that they don't want foreign buyers, for example, Chinese government state controlled entities coming in and, and making acquisitions. And 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 finally, I'll put something else on the table in terms of the future of MA. If you think about these low valuations, Suzanne, and then the, the pandemic intervention of government to help businesses get through it, I think there's going to be a lot of focus on if an acquisition is made at a, a price where the company still hasn't gotten back to where it was, about how the employees of that company and the communities in which they operate are being treated, particularly if the company took assistance money during. And I think there could be some in, increased um, focus actually on private equity acquisitions, like what are you going to do after you take this company private? What are we going to know about 
how you treat your workforce precisely because of the deep, you know, societal investment that's been made to help companies weather the storm. So I think it's going to be a really interesting um, uh, M&A market. I think they're going to be buying opportunities, particularly if there's a recovery, because I don't think the values may recover to the levels they were, which could make it a good time for acquisitions. But I think there's going to be more societal focus on whether these acquisitions are good for everyone than maybe there has been in the past. That was really interesting. I have like 11 follow-up questions, but I'm going to turn for a minute and bring Torsten into the conversation. So your firm developed a tracker to collect data on lawsuits filed during the pandemic. Tell us about what motivated you to do that and also kind of how it works. Sure. For, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, now, back in, in February, as the as COVID-19 started spreading here, we were looking pretty closely at the issue of how force majeure in contracts would play out under uh, COVID-19. And what we found was that there was sort of an absence of case law dealing with pandemics and epidemics since the turn of the century when there were a bunch of cholera and, um, and polio cases. And so we first decided to track force majeure cases so we could see how that body of law would develop um, as it got litigated. And what we quickly found was that there were just a lot of interesting legal questions that were likely to arise uh, out of COVID-19 as it, as it became more and more apparent that this was going to be a, you know, a massive event that would have have tremendous effects throughout the economy. So, so we set up the tracker, and what it does is it, it from a variety of different sources, it gathers all of the complaints that are filed at the federal and state level across the country, um, and then we categorize them into groups that we think are most relevant or interesting to both our clients and to business owners uh, and to the public at large. Um, and we've made we've made our complaint tracker public. Uh, it's a website that anybody can access. And if it's okay with you, I'll do a screen share really quickly and just show you what it looks like. So the easiest way to get to the tracker is you'll see the URL up here. I presume you can see this, but the easiest way to get there is simply to um, Google Hunton COVID litigation. And you'll the first search result should be the tracker. And again, this is open uh, to the public, so anybody can go there. And what you'll see on the tracker page is this heat map of the United States and you can click on any state and get more detailed information about the cases in that particular state. Up in the right-hand corner here, you see the total complaints to date. And this was, as of today, we're up to 2,645 complaints. You can filter using these uh, sliding tabs if you want to locate complaints filed on a certain date or in a certain date range. Then as you move down the page, here you see in number order the number of cases that have been filed in the different states. And you've got New York far out in the lead with 600 38 cases. And then as you move down to the bottom of the page, here you'll see the different categories that we've set up and the corresponding number of cases in each of those categories. And you can drill down into each of these categories to get more detail about the particular kinds of cases. Finally, on the right-hand side here, you'll see we have the running uh, count of complaints. The bottom blue line represents the complaints filed on any given day, and the teal line above represents the total complaints filed as of as of whatever date you're on. Um, and so, the, the, you know, the way we do it, as I said, is we've got several different data feeds that come in with the complaints. Um, sometimes we use the coding that comes along with the complaints that's put on the coding sheets by the lawyers filing them. 
sometimes we uh, will hand code those ourselves and input that data. And we, we enjoy doing it. It's, uh, it's not a small task for sure, uh, but it's been a labor of love and it's yielded some pretty interesting results. I, th I think you may be on mute, Suzanne. I was silencing my four-legged <laughs> I apologize. Um, so far, you know, we need to develop the mute button that only mutes the four-legged co-workers and not the, the actual worker. In any case, that's for another panel. Uh, let me jump in there and say, so you've looked at that for a while. We've looked at it for a few minutes. Give me an insight from it. Tell me about um, what you're learning from it. Sure. So some of the obvious data points that jump out of it are what the big categories of litigation are. And what we've seen so far are that um, the biggest category right now is insurance cases. There are 631 cases uh, that have been filed to date. Um, almost all of those are cases where you have insureds that are claiming wrongful denial of coverage. There are some uh, insurer side cases where they have um, move for declaratory judgments on policy coverage. But that's that's the biggest category today. And it's one that seems to be taking off. Um, the other major category not far behind it that we saw uh, particularly heavy early on was habeas corpus petitions. So you had incarcerated individuals uh, at, at every level from you know ICE detention to psychiatric hospitals to prisons and jails who were petitioning for release because of um, specific health concerns related to COVID-19. Usually, some underlying condition that if they contracted COVID-19 would be especially dangerous for them. That seems to be trailing off a bit, um, but the insurance cases are picking up. Um, the other category that has been pretty steady have been civil rights cases, and those take on a, a variety of different flavors. Um, so some of them are petitions against different um, government authorities for stay-at-home orders or business closure orders or business category exemptions. Um, and other cases involve voting rights, for example, um, asking to move a voting deadline or not to move a voting deadline. Um, but so it's been interesting to see sort of the velocity at which the different kinds of cases were being filed um, and, and also to see which categories of cases were not really taking off that may take off in the future. When you think about this tracker and the volume, you just talked for a minute about types. Where do you see the volume kind of headed? Do you think that COVID-19 related litigation has peaked or just started or where is that curve? I think it probably has just started. Um, so I ran some numbers before the program about the total number of complaints uh, filed in 2019 in federal courts. And the number was up around uh, 300,000 total. And so right now, all of the COVID cases, both federal and state, are, are at less than 1% of what was filed last year in federal courts alone. So, it, you know, the litigation right now, I think, is, uh, is you know, it's it started, as you can see from the graph on the tracker, really getting some traction in May. And I think you're likely to see that trend continue and getting bigger, right? If our, if our total volume of federal cases is around 300,000, I would have to anticipate that the volume of litigation around this major economically disruptive and life disrupting event um, will comprise a much larger part of that total volume um, going forward. Let me ask you one more question before we bring in the next panelists. You know, we know from the Chamber of MetLife surveys how concerned 
small businesses are, large businesses are about liability in reopening. And so speaking to our small business audience, what do you think businesses should be taking into account as they weigh the risks of reopening? Sure, it's it's a great question, and it's one that you know we get many times over every single day in our practice. Um, I think that you know there are very specific pieces of advice that are relevant to specific businesses, but I think generally um, businesses would be well advised to be familiar with some of the major pieces of legislation that are in place and what they require, um, and make sure those requirements are followed. And you know, in particular, the um, FFCRA is one that businesses should be familiar with, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, um, which provides different um, different rights to employees related to sick leave and, 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 and similar issues. Um, and also, if businesses uh, applied for and received PPP funds, that they understand what those funds can be used for uh, and what they can't be used for, I think are very important things. Generally, uh, I think they also have to be familiar with local closure orders. That's that's obviously very important to make sure they stay within those guidelines. And uh, finally, you know, there are there are a lot of resources that are available on, uh, including the CDC's website, on how to reopen safely in terms of dealing with the virus itself. And so, certainly, following that sort of guidance is important. And I know that, especially for a small business, a lot of that is overwhelming, right? Because you have all of these different vectors of information that you have to be paying attention to at the same time. Um, But there are a lot of great summary resources out there, including the U.S. Chamber has fantastic COVID-19 related resources for small businesses. So I think they would be well served to spend some time getting familiar with those resources and then checking back on them periodically as they do reopen. Excellent advice. Uh, Let me turn now to bringing in Jamie Gorlick. Thank you for being with us. I I understand that you're the co-chair of the Crisis Management and uh, strategic response group at your firm. Uh, You've certainly seen a lot in your career. How has this crisis been different? Well, in a lot of ways. Let me just uh, identify five. First of all, this affected everybody at the same time, not just one client or one industry. Second, it has been both a health challenge and crisis and an economic one simultaneously. Third, we've been pretty blind to the science. So we don't know what we need to know about this virus. And so planning and structuring your response has been extremely difficult, even to this day. And fourth would be that every question that we've been asked has been a new one, uh, and therefore every answer has been a new one. And then ultimately, both for us at Wilmer Hale, but also for our clients, the teams have been dispersed. So the normal uh, cohesion and the ability to snap your fingers and get uh, uh, get your team in place has not been there. So it's been been uh, both very interesting and very challenging. And so what types of principles do you follow and do you recommend that might be helpful to our viewers when you're facing a situation like that? Well, I would have three and there are a variation of the principles that we use in crisis management all the time. And the very first one is stay calm. You would be surprised how many people don't. Uh, Leadership is fundamentally about your values uh, and that is true in both the business context 
and the personal one. And part of that is just realizing that you're going to have to make the best decisions you can. You cannot be perfect. And if you're frozen by needing to be perfect, you will fail. The second is to stay organized uh, and focus on your goal. So in our law firm, we were one of the first to set up a coronavirus task force. We brought everybody together around a common goal of being able to help our, our clients. Um, but that's true in businesses as well. And you have to establish accountabilities and build the right team for each effort. One of the most interesting things in a crisis, and it's particularly been true here, is you have to have very agile cross-functional teams. You cannot afford to be bureaucratic. You have to have agile decision-making. And the third is to stay aware and to stay in touch. And by that, I mean, A, you can't blink reality. You have to have as close to 360 degree awareness as you possibly can have. Uh, and you need to stay in touch with um, your uh, your colleagues, your clients, and over-communicate. You have to over-communicate because it is even harder to sort of pierce the isolation that people feel. Gosh, there's so much to ask each of you. It's hard to stop. But, but let me say one thing. I was reading about uh, you talking about how some of your clients had asked you to catalog every single state and local ordinance that they were supposed to be abiding by and paying attention to. So did you make that catalog? What, is, what does an effort like that even look like? Well, yes, we made that catalog. We uh, surveyed not just in the United States, but elsewhere, every single local uh, and state ordinance that could affect a client. And then we matched up the client's businesses in each jurisdiction uh, against those requirements. I mean, we didn't have national rules. We had a blizzard of state and local rules. Um, advocacy made a difference. So you'd get uh, a rule and you, you could get to the person who was writing the rule to say, really, you've written this definition in a way that has a consequence you may not intend. Very important. Uh, the definitions, and time periods differed. And now, of course, we're playing the same movie backwards. We're doing the same thing for reopening as different states and localities have different rules. When you look at that as a whole, what does it tell you? I mean, if when you look at that whole catalog of of ordinances and regulations, what does it tell you? Well, it tells you that um, uh, this is a hard set of problems. It's hard for people to get their arms around uh, uh, around the nature of the problem. Um, and I think you know we we. Uh, we just need to focus on uh, getting the right expert advice from whether it's a health professional or a legal professional, being hands-on and being a presence in everyone's lives, being steady and calm, as I said, and trying to see around corners and looking down the field for what is next. I, this has been a real test of leadership for uh, companies and institutions of, of, of every sort. And I think we're learning a lot. If we happen to have, which I hope we don't, a second wave of this, I think, I think uh, organizations are going to be a lot better at it. I suspect they will. Do you think there's a long-term impact on the legal system or the legal profession from the last couple months? The legal profession, I think, will have, I think every Every institution will change in some fundamental ways. I think people have gotten used to working at home. I think that the uh, agility that organizations have seen, they're not, they, I hope they don't give it up. They might 
return to their prior uh, bureaucratic uh, ways, but I, 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 I hope and, and think that they, they won't. I think that, you know, we saw companies trying to change their business models in no time, like uh, someone who manufactures aircraft carriers trying to make uh, masks. That kind of agility, that ability to turn literally on a dime, I think is very, very healthy for, for our society. The one thing I would say to people who might be listening, which won't come as any surprise, is one of the things that we do in this country is after we've had a serious event or challenge is uh, we, we, in my words, shoot the wounded. That is, we come, uh, we come in and and we offer recriminations, and we saw it in real time with the Paycheck Protection Program, where where people were invited to come in and take advantage of small business loans, and when they did, according to the rules, they were uh, excoriated for doing so. That's the fastest uh, I've seen those recriminations coming. But we will see that. We will see oversight and uh, and and blame for sure. And I think being able to see down that field is very important, even as we take advantage of the changes that we, the beneficial changes we've seen in our society. All right, let's bring in our final panelists, and then we're already getting tons of audience questions that I want to get to. So Peter Friedman, thank you for being with us, and thank you for helping me struggle with saying, I still can't do it, oh, Melvany. There is no something Melvin. about that O. That O is throwing me off. I'm so <laughs> sorry. I need like remedial, I'll need a remedial class, I think. Um, I really appreciate you being with us today. And I think I want to bring you in on an important topic that we haven't touched on too much yet, and that is bankruptcy. So talk to our audience for a minute about what bankruptcy really means and, and why it's so important to a functioning free enterprise system. Sure, um, and thank you so much. It's really an honor to be on, on this panel and, and with, with the Chamber Foundation. Um, look, I think bankruptcy is really, um, in many ways, the economic core of last work. It provides struggling businesses with an opportunity under the right circumstances to reorganize, get rid of burdens and contract. It provides and, and provide returns to creditors, uh, continued employment, continued servicing vendors and customers. It uh, also provides an orderly forum for creditors to obtain recovery and uh, you know, a, sort of a, a lawful um, regulated manner for parties to settle enormous dispute. Um, some some small, some reaching into the hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, you know, from cases as complex as, as the government of Puerto Rico, um, where you have you know, a, a functioning government in bankruptcy trying to resolve billions and billions of dollars of bond claims and claims of employees and claims of retirees and claims of contract counterparties um, to you know, systemic financial institutions like Lehman 11 years ago, um, operating businesses, at, um, you know, major corporations like PG&E that service the most important energy markets in the world. Uh, to small businesses um, and to individuals who are burdened by health care bills or other bills they can't manage. It provides a forum for people to get an economic fresh start. And again, a, a way for creditors to settle disputes um, that aren't just one-on-one, -on -one, but that can affect hundreds of parties. Uh, Suzanne, you're on you. You said in a recent Washington Post op-ed that the U.S. bankruptcy courts are at risk of being overwhelmed. And two kind of related questions to that kind of one, what is the capacity of the legal system and how do you see it playing out? And two, are there any fixes to that, any quick fixes to that that might help us resolve it? So I, I think that the question of a quick fix is really the answer. We, we really have to see how things play out. 
Um, the bankruptcy courts have been remarkable. Uh, bankruptcy courts have been holding hearings on Saturdays, late at night on, on weekdays to adjust to um, the major cases that have been filed and the smaller case files. There has certainly been a substantial uptick, I would say, in three areas. There are the energy and gas companies that have seen you know, a substantial number of filing because of the volatility in oil. There's retail, which as people know, has been suffering for years, but more and more retail companies have had to file for bankruptcy because of both secular changes that preceded um, COVID-19, but the onslaught of COVID-19, you know, changing people's shopping. And then there's the companies that no one would have predicted would have filed so ago, like Hurt or Latin, LATAM, Latin America's biggest airline, that are, have seen demand shrink because of COVID, and that's affected their balance sheets and their need for cash in really meaningful ways. Um, and I think that has caused some taxation on the bankruptcy system, particularly in jurisdictions that receive a high number of filings like Delaware, like Houston, Texas. Um, Northern Virginia has actually seen an uptick of filing. And, um, you know, and it's, it's posed some fascinating, interesting issues that, that other people have sort of touched on. For example, can a debtor receive a PPP loan or and there's been a wide uh, divergence in opinions of bankruptcy courts across the country. Um, can debtors be freed from paying rent for a certain to landlords for a certain amount of time? Cases like J. Crew judges have said yes, and of course, the consequence of a judge saying yes is that uh, a debtor will want to file for bankruptcy in front of that same judge if possible because of fairly loose venue. Uh, now, you know, I, I'm always a little humble when the things I predict don't come out correctly. And I think some of the things the that, that Congress has done have pro and some of the changes in behavior have probably depressed personal bankruptcy filings because, for example, healthcare costs are a major driver of personal bankruptcy filing. But people have used the healthcare system less the last three months counterintuitively because people haven't wanted to go into hospital. Because of moratorium on foreclosures and uh, credit card companies being willing to work with borrowers, um, some of the things that you might have predicted would have forced people into bankruptcy haven't come to pass. Um, the same with some of the levels of unemployment and other benefits um, that have allowed personal income to stay relatively robust in many respects have forestalled bankruptcy, uh, personal bankruptcies that I do think if those go away and if those behaviors change, um, I think you, know, you will see an even greater magnitude of bankruptcy. As to fixes, I actually believe that bankruptcy judges are one of the great success stories in a, even in a hyper-partisan judicial system because they're not picked by a president and they're not subject to Senate confirmation. They're picked by other federal judges who have always worked extremely well together, irrespective of who appointed them, to choose extremely qualified, sophisticated bankruptcy judges. And I think those can be moved quickly. And I think, you know, if this, you know, if the rate of cases continues to grow and does tax, uh, you know, kind of Congress can be encouraged very quickly to, to appoint more bankruptcy judges, and the court system can react quickly to fill those vacancies in a much less partisan way than we're used to seeing over judicial. As you all probably know, that the chamber is a great federation. So we have big business members and small business members, but we also have trade associations and American Chambers of Commerce abroad, and a really robust network of state and local chambers across the country. So we represent a mix of for-profit and not-for-profit uh, organizations. And so could you talk to the audience a little bit about if it's bankruptcy is different for for-profit and non-profit organizations? Um, look, there, there are some meaningful differences. Um, you know, one one benefit um, of, for non-profits is uh, there's a whole doctrine of 
law that, uh, for example, um, called regarding fraudulent transfer or people giving money away, uh, you know, an entity that files for bankruptcy had given money away pre-bankrupt can be clawed back, even innocent parties. That doesn't apply to nonprofit. Congress changed to make charitable deductions not subject to be captured for fraud. Um, you know, there, there are... Um, important ways that that I think both under the bankruptcy code and the way judges approach nonprofits that really do make it more yeah, easier for them to reorganize and to continue operating um, in conjunction with their creditors rather than liquidation. And so obviously it's always an extraordinarily serious step and, and one that before any entity, and I would say particularly for nonprofits, uh, that don't always have visibility two or three steps down the road, for example, to always ensure um, that their officers and directors are properly insured and have the right directors and officers um, insurance policies in place before they ever consider a bankruptcy, uh, because that, that's, that's extremely important because sometimes creditors do look to individual lawsuits against directors and officers of nonprofits prior to a bankruptcy, but they really need to make sure um, that they have in place before a bankruptcy filing. And, and again, it's, it's obviously always a Bankruptcy is expensive. Bankruptcy is is burdensome, but there are ways that nonprofits um, can access it if necessary to reduce their obligations. I've, I've seen successful reorganizations for nonprofits, particularly in the hospital space, but but across the board. Let me ask you a follow up question to that. I thought you were being um, thoughtful about all of the things that go into making a big decision like this, and yet some of the questions we're getting both in the audience questions and that we were talking about before the program was that how other people people, whether it's a supplier or somebody else going bankrupt, has an impact on your small business or on your business. And so, you know, how should our members be thinking about that? So look, if, if you're in a place where your own company is not um, filing for bankruptcy and you're healthy, I think of it as three ways. The first, as, as, as Justice Strine mentioned earlier, any system of economic dislocation creates opportunity. And oftentimes um, there are assets that can be quite attractive being sold by bankrupt companies, um, big, small, et cetera, that can be acquired uh, free and clear of liability under the bankrupt. So if you're a company that sees a competitor filing for bankruptcy or somebody who holds an attractive lease or somebody you know, who has intellectual property that might be for sale, bankruptcy auctions are actually, you know, they're public, they're open, and they provide a lot of protection to buyers. The second way is, you know, if, you, if you're a supplier to a company filing for bankruptcy, you really have to carefully monitor um, your trade terms prior to bankruptcy. There's a whole set of laws about when you can change your trade terms and when you can't. And that's an extremely important thing. And the third mechanism is well, what happens when they file. Um, there are levers that can be pushed. There, you know, every bankruptcy has something called a credit, not every, but bankruptcy, bankruptcies at least of a meaningful size have creditors committee on which individual creditors uh, can serve. Um, oftentimes a debtor, again, largely in, in larger cases though, has opportunities to pay creditors in full who provide critical service uh, prior to a bank. And, and critical vendors can be provided with beneficial treatment. There are provisions of the bankruptcy code uh, with respect to services that are provided within 20 days of the bankruptcy that can entitle counterparties to preferential treatment. So, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's certainly worth, um, you know, people in charge of purchasing payables and receivables being really educated and cognizant about what it means for a counterparty to file for bank because it's neither an, you know, it's certainly not a, 
situation continues as normal because you know you can get in a lot of trouble billing companies that are in bankruptcy or trying to collect from companies. But it's also not necessarily the end of the world or the end of the relationship because creditors do have significant rights in bankruptcy. Thank you for that. I think it was really valuable for our audience. And we have so many questions. So I'm going to try to do a bit of a lightning round here. And I have questions for each of you, but I'm going to start for a second with Jamie because we're getting a lot of questions about FFCRA and what it really means. Means and for let's see, a nonprofit with fewer than 50 employees, uh, can you elect not to offer it? Uh, how do you confirm an exemption? Uh, lots of questions about this. Yeah, I'm actually not the uh, the real expert in FFCRA. We have in our firm people who can answer those questions, but I will say that for the most part, uh, you know, you, the the provisions of that uh, bill do have requirements for how you treat your employees in these circumstances. There are exemptions for for smaller firms, but uh, you know, uh, the Congress really uh, uh, quickly uh, recognized the the needs of individuals who uh, had to make decisions about whether to come to work, and you need to you need to abide by them. I'd be happy to take questions offline and and get them to our individual experts on on things like the the uh, the the number of employees, et cetera. Yeah, I don't know the answers either, and the chamber should be able to advise people. So we promise that we will work together and follow up there. But let me jump to Torsten for a second because we're also getting a bunch of questions about waivers and and testing and kind of the underlying what would protect me from a lawsuit? If I if I have events, do I have to get a waiver from the event space? If I have events, do I have to get a waiver from my guests? Do, are waivers even any kind of any kind of protection? And so uh, let me throw that bundle to you. <laughs> that is a bundle. Um, I, I can probably best answer the question um, from a practical perspective. A lot of employers and event hosts are getting waivers um, and they are asking preliminary questions of employees and customers, uh, preliminary health screening type questions before those people enter the place of employment um, or place of business. And, and generally, they're asking the symptom questions that the CDC is publishing. And those are changing from day to day is probably an overstatement, but they're, they're changing regularly. And so, um, you know, one practice that a lot of people have adopted is watching those CDC symptom um, statements come out and then asking those questions before employees are admitted uh, or before customers are admitted. I hope that answers the bundle of questions. It's, it's, it's quite, it really is quite a bundle. Um, but it reminds me, and I want to go back to Leo Strine on this, if you wouldn't mind jumping in here, that we just hear, no matter what the size of business, that they're afraid there's the risk of going bankrupt because they don't reopen and there's the risk of going bankrupt from a lawsuit if they do reopen. So how do you think we can create a safe harbor? Do you think we can create a safe harbor for good actors, right? For good actors I, I, really trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I think, Suzanne, that we have a litigious society, but the cost of that tend to be more in the transaction cost of hiring attorneys than in really something that would fundamentally bring down a company. I think that if you're following good procedures, you're paying attention, and I agree with Jamie, it's been difficult because it would be easier, for example, you had sort of uniform CDC guidance that everyone could follow when you're a, a, a multi-state company. But if you're following the practices that are advised, I think you have relatively little to fear in terms of liability. I think most people want 
want to get back to work and most people want to go, I want to go to a restaurant. I'm actually going to try to hope reopen Wilmington, Delaware tomorrow night, one of our restaurants that was actually torn up in the looting. And so I think I think businesses should just try to find out what the local guidance is, what the CDC is, do good things. I think the main liability risk that you actually face is not with your customers. It's going to be if you're not responsible towards your employee. And one of my things, I think there's going to be increasing salience. I said this in the M&A context, but I also think it's going to be true in corporate governance generally, how you're working with your workforce and are you involving them and, and being respectful of them as you reopen. And I think one of the waves of corporate cases we may see would be so-called Caremark suits. If you have some of the, where it can come together where a stockholder says, look, your plant was shut down for a month and a half because you didn't take care of your employees. You weren't responsible. I think those are for the more um, human capital intensive organizations where some people have to do very difficult work. Suzanne, you know, in a plant to keep our food supply. That's where I'd be very attentive as a business. I think for smaller businesses, retail, others, I think liability risk pales in comparison to the harm they would suffer if they can't get back up and run and have revenues. And the same is true for the the harm to their employees. So I think people should stay sane about it. I think Jamie said, keep your head cool, which is focus. If you focus on your customers, and their well-being and your employees and your own well-being and try to take some responsible care, I really think that there's very little likelihood you're going to get sued. And here's another thing, you know, uh, just being realistic, people are going to have to trace where they got it and they're going to go a lot of places. So that's why I focus on the employees, because those are the people who come every day to your establishment. Those are your people. And if, and by the way, if you're making the workplace safe for them, you're also making it work safe for your customers. So I think don't exaggerate the litigation risk. Focus on running your business with integrity towards the people who are who are its customers and who are you depend on as employees. And I think it will work out well for you. And I would, you know, I think you've got to go forward and reopen. And I think the legal, I think the court system in general is going to be very appreciative of what we're going through. And so I think, and, I, and by the way, I think Suzanne, because we're all human beings who've gone through this, I think juries will as well. I think people who try to make a meal out of some case and, you know, are really going to have a much harder sell in this context because we all know how it's difficult it's been for everybody. Uh, Janie, I think you were going to jump in here too on the safe part. Yeah. Issue. Yeah, I agree entirely with everything uh, that Leo said. The If you try to determine what the best practices are and you and you do your best, I think you're going to avoid liability and somebody could sue. But I totally agree with Leo that if you're looking for the standard and you try to abide by it, you're going to be okay. Now, the standards have changed. I mean, if you look at the CDC's website, uh, as I said we have been blind to this this virus. We ha we haven't known. We didn't know at the beginning that you should wear masks, and now it's de rigueur. Uh, we didn't we didn't realize how it was transmitted. That actually has been changing a lot. So I think that Leo makes an excellent point when he says, you know, judges have lived through this. Juries have lived through this. They're not going to impose. Uh, uh, liability on someone who tried, tried to keep an essential business open. I do think it's important to make a, to not only determine the standard, but make a record that you did and what you tried to do. Are you going to be held to a standard of perfection? I don't think so. Well, from, from both of your lips to God's ears, as they say, let me let me bring uh, Torsten back in for a second. One of the things that, that your tracker is looking at and, and we talked about was that we thought we were at the beginning of 
the COVID-19 litigation. How would you respond to what you just heard, but also what you see as the trends are as this kind of litigation picks up? Is it specific to certain industries or, you know, I'm curious if you agree with your colleagues here about not much to worry about folks. Yeah, well, so I agree with my colleagues definitely um, on on virtually all of what they said. Um, I think you will see people trying to make a meal out of some of this though. Um, and and I, and I think it was Peter who said it, or maybe it was uh, Leo, that the transactional cost is really the problem for most people as opposed to the liability. And so I don't know that I would go as far as to say nothing to worry about, folks, but I absolutely fully agree that the potential harm from not opening up and from not running your business and not putting your people back to work is going to be far greater than the litigation risk. Um, in terms of the litigation trends, I think there are a lot of people, and, and I think I think Leo may have said this before too, there are a lot of people who are holding their powder for a while to see how things play out. And I think um, you, had a, you had a period between March when the designation of pandemic came out on the 11th, and even today where commercial partners are trying to work things out to some degree. And some of them have already done that. Some of them will be successful at that, and some of them will fail at that, and those failed ones will result in, in litigation. And so I think we're still pretty early on in the cycle of COVID-19 litigation. I think even some of the issues that existed as of the beginning of it back in February, March, um, some of those cases haven't been brought yet and will be brought in the future. And then I think you'll have ongoing effects of it that lead to litigation as well. So I think we will see we will see more of it. Um, I, I agree that we shouldn't be paralyzed by the fear of it. We need to reopen businesses and get back to work and get our employees back to work and get customers served. Um, but there there will be some litigation down the road, I fear. I think the three of you have just done a really remarkable job in giving our audience some reason to have more confidence and to really think about both how to help their employees get back to a paycheck and their customers get back to a service. So uh, I, I wasn't trying to shorthand it with nothing to worry about here, folks, as much as pivot to bring somebody else in. But I think the things you're saying are really important because what we hear at the chamber is real fear. And so uh, being that calm voice and bringing that in, I think was a really important part of this discussion. So thank you for that. Um, we do have a specific bankruptcy question from the audience I want to come back to. It's a super specific one, but it's should companies uh, still consider deferring payroll taxes if they think they're at risk of going bankrupt? Can I ask you that question, Peter? Yeah, I think it's a, a two-part question. There's obviously, um, because payroll taxes have two components, there's the employer side and the employee side. There should No one should ever withhold the portion of from you know, that, that's the employee's side, that people can get into enormous trouble trying to use that for liquidity purposes. Those kinds of taxes that are really the property of the employee or other you know taxes collected or what's called trust fund taxes and companies can face criminal liability um, for not making those payments. But I know that, that some of the legislation has um, addressed the issue of, of the employer side um, know, uh, deferral. And I think as, as long as that's permitted um, as a matter of federal law, that's an appropriate source of, of liquidity that lawyers admitted to do consistent with the law. It's just, you know, what I think nobody should be confused as to whether you can elect to not make payment from employer side, the employee side. That, that's what would get people into trouble. And I actually have seen cases where governmental entities have pursued office and directed companies that have not made 
appropriate payments of uh, withholding from employee. I think that that's that's where people have to be really clear as to what's a permissible liquidity source. That's really helpful to our audience. I appreciate you answering such a specific question. I'm personally so bummed that it's four o'clock because what I really wanted to double down on, and maybe you would all be willing to come back if we were really nice. Um, what I really wanted to go to next is to talk about how fast industry has been changing and institutions are changing. And, you know, we, we were talking in the virtual green room about what it offices look like? Are people really back five days a week? People who are fortunate enough to have work and have that kind of work. And so, you know, I'm really curious what you as such leaders in your field believe about that. But I guess I'll have to assuage that curiosity another way, another time. You were wonderful. You made a great addition, all four of you, to our audience and our discussion of navigating the return to work. And we really, really appreciate it. You each made a substantive, important contribution. And I, we could have filled a whole hour with each of you. So thank you for doing that. Uh, to the thank audience, you. thanks yeah. so much for staying with us. You can see all of our episodes on our website. We'd love to see you there. The Foundation has three great events next week. The State of the Pandemic with the an ex-FDA commissioner and also some educators really talking about schools and camps, you know, what all of us parents are the most worried about. That we also have an event on Wednesday and on Friday, a really special event with Bill and Melinda Gates and what they're doing to fight this virus around the world. So thank you as always for tuning in. Everybody stay safe and healthy and uh, thanks for learning along with us.